Hey, uh, this is hilarious. And also, we have heard more emergency vehicles outside, probably with the street lights and stuff. So let's just be praying for that as we continue on here this morning. So um, let's do one more prayer for, for those things going on. And then we're just going to keep rolling, all right? Um, we, do have, we do have windows in the kids' classroom, so they're fine. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that all over the world right now, there are people gathering as a part of your global church to lift up your name, Jesus. And we here are no exception. We lift you up as the name above all names. And we thank you, God, that you are a God of provision and guidance and a God of presence. And so we pray right now for just the chaos that is ensuing for so many people right now. Uh, we're in a peaceful moment here, but we pray, God, for peace. We pray, God, for restoration of the power, especially for people who need it most um, for their businesses and for their homes and for the vehicles and stuff. God, we just pray over all of that. But we ask that you would just... Focus us in on what you want to say to us today. In some ways, all the distractions are gone, and we can just listen to you. And so we just ask, God, that you would speak this morning, that uh, anything that you want to say to your people would come from me, and anything that's not from you would just fall away. Uh, these are your kids, and you love them, and we're thankful that you love us so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I asked this question um, of all of you. What were you like when you were 14? When I was 14, I was not cool. <laughs> I meet, I, like I was just talking to Aaliyah, she's 13, she is way cooler than me. Mill City teenagers are so much cooler than I ever was, and they would probably say than I am now. <laughs> I, I don't know if I thought I was cool, but it was really cool to wear flannel when I was 14. Anyone else? Really cool in the 90s? But I think I had like an emotional support flannel, because I wore it like every other day. And I, I accidentally left it in the hockey locker room at an away game, and I was devastated. <laughs> And it wasn't until I looked back that I realized that might have been an emotional support flannel. Anyway, I was an awkward teenager. So if anyone else was an awkward teenager, can we just like get together and hug later so we can feel better about that? <laughs> like it was a lot. But who is 14 this month, everybody? Mill City Church is 14 years old. Yeah. Yes. And in 14 years, we've never had a worship service in the dark. In here. <laughs> At least not that we weren't intentionally doing for like Good Friday or something. So here we are, 14 years later. Um, we always try to celebrate Mill City's birthday this time of year. Um, we don't have cake or balloons this year, but it's an exciting moment for us to just say, hey, look, we've been following Jesus in all this time. In the fall of 2008, some of us, I still remember, we gathered in Stacy and Ryan May's house, and we didn't even have a name for this church yet, and we were like, all right. We're doing this, and I think eventually we named the church Mill City because it's a nickname for Minneapolis. And when you love somebody and you want to honor them, you name your kid after them, right? So we named the church after the city that we love, and that's what it was all about for us. And that, and that, that mills, the idea of the first vocation of the city, the mills, the sawmills, and the flour mills. And so here we are, uh, 14 years later, still close to the, the, well, you know, the reason that they had the power, the, the mills here was for the power that came from the... <laughs> The falls to be able to power the sawmills back then. I don't know that they're doing that for us at this very moment. Um, but that, that's what we've been doing ever since then. And I would say that this whole time, we would say our hope and our goal is to live out our mission to love our community in the name of Jesus. And so we have had the heart to be a Jesus-centered church from the beginning. And I want to be the first to admit to you that we never have and we never will perfectly live up to that pursuit. But that is our heart, to be a Jesus-centered church. It is our deepest heart, it is our deepest pursuit. And so we're starting this conversation, Jesus-centered church, for the next couple of months, out of the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've rooted our practices as a church, as you've probably heard, in the, the ways and the works and the words of Jesus found in the Gospels. That's where we find a lot of our practices. 
But our ecclesiology, or our theology of what's the purpose of the church, is rooted in a lot of different places in the New Testament especially, but one that's been special to us has been the book of Ephesians. That's been in a meaningful spot for us. It's even in our membership covenant. So this letter to the, to the Ephesians, it seems like it's written, first of all, just to the church in the city of Ephesus. But nearly all scholars agree that this was a letter that actually was circulated. It was sent around to all the churches in Asia Minor. It's like the original first century version of going viral, okay? <laughs> Ephesians went viral. And I think we know that's true because here we are, over 2,000 years later, still talking about it. So here we go. It has gone viral all over the place. And so in a lot of ways, it informs the church, in, in generally speaking, because even though he was writing to that area, it was more broad. And he actually wrote it, Paul, the Apostle Paul, an early leader in the church, he actually wrote it when he was in prison in Rome. And he's writing to these churches from his heart. Why was he in prison? Most people believe that he was in prison because he had brought a Gentile, someone from this other ethnic group, into the Jewish temple, and people had found a way to imprison him for that. But Jesus had been flipping the script on what it looked like for people to have unity and diversity, and Paul was all about that, and so that ended up landing him in jail, in prison at this point. And so he's writing from his heart to these young churches, and he's trying to encourage them to continue to live as Jesus-centered people in a world that is anything but Jesus-centered. Sound familiar? He is encouraging them to live out the words and the works and the ways of Jesus, and we're going to see that throughout this series. We're going to do something just a little bit different throughout this series as well, and we're going to invite different people to come and actually read the words of Ephesians so that you hear the voices of our church more broadly reading out these words of Ephesians. So Patrick's going to come up, and he's going to carefully, he's going to uh, read the passage that we're going to look at today in, in Ephesians 1, and as he's coming up, I want you to notice something. In the book of Ephesians, and this is true of other letters as well, every time you hear the word you, it's in Greek there, and it's translated in English as you, but you should always think of it as plural. So I'm not going to ask you to say y'all, but it is y'all, okay? So every time you hear you, it's y'all, or you all. Paul is speaking to the corporate, not mostly to the individual, specifically in the book of Ephesians. So we'll have Patrick read that, and then we'll continue on. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be heard over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Thanks, Patrick. So, okay, here's the thing. There's a number of challenges that I think we face when it comes to being a Jesus-centered church in the world today. I hope that's not a shock to anybody. I hope no one's saying, what are you talking about? It's been super easy. For us, but I think it's actually true. There's a lot of challenges that we face. And I have said before, I think last week I said, we are 
we are in an increasingly complex world, right? And so we are facing lots of different things that are increasingly complex, but there is one barrier that we face in being a Jesus say is the biggest one, okay? And you can disagree with me, but one of the biggest barriers we face in being a Jesus-centered church in this world is that we live in a power-obsessed world. We live in a power-obsessed world. And yes, friends, today's sermon is about power. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. I did notice that a couple minutes ago, but here we are. (laughs) So here's my example. I don't need to convince you of this. But listen to the headlines. I just I just screenshot some headlines from a number of different news outlets yesterday. Here's what I read. Russians retreat as Ukraine presses lightning offensive. Let's see. The line of succession. Prince William is now heir to the throne. Of all the weapons the U.S. has shipped to Ukraine, none have attracted as much attention as this rocket launcher. Steve Bannon pleads not guilty to New York State charges of money laundering, conspiracy, and fraud related to border wall efforts. Oh, wait, this is different. How to make your workout as fun as a video game according to behavioral scientists. That was <laughs> That was for something else. But you, so you get it. You Still see what I mean, right? You see that we live in this power-obsessed world, laced with power plays and hierarchy and powering over and, and domination of other people. Our power and control-obsessed world, it shows itself in other ways than just politics or, or headlines, right? We often talk about things that seem relatively harmless, like a social media influencer. But influence ha- influencers have power, right, in people's lives. They have influence in ways that, I'm not saying it's always bad, but they do have it. Money gives us power. In fact, psychologically, people feel more powerful when they have more money. And at this time, in this letter, Paul was traveling to Ephesus, was was sending this letter, traveling around Ephesus and then beyond. This is in ancient Rome. And ancient Rome was a culture that was pretty obsessed with power. Anyone who has studied uh, the Roman Empire would know this, right? The word empire kind of gives that away. Ancient writers like Polybus claimed that Rome had subjected the entire earth. Obviously, that's not what happened, but that's how they felt, (laughs) right? And it is said that in the city of Ephesus, Etched on this large uh, a stone column was the phrase, Rome's power will never die. So the 4th and 5th century would prove that statement wrong, but that's what they were feeling, right? So when it comes to the challenge of being a Jesus-centered church in a power-hungry world, those listening to Paul knew that challenge as well as we do today. Different contexts, but similarities in that way. So here's my question for all of us today. How can we be a Jesus-centered church in the midst of a power-obsessed world? How can we be a Jesus-centered church in the midst of a power-obsessed world? We see Paul address this in our passage today. So let's kind of dig into what this passage is saying. We're going to take our time through Ephesians, as I mentioned. We're going to, all the way to Advent, actually, you guys. It's basically Christmas, so we'll move on. But we're, we're not going to get into the details as much as Pastor Ashish and I would. Have you noticed that we're always like, I would really love to tell you more, but... We're going to keep moving through. So let me just give you an overview of chapter one. So Patrick just read the second half of chapter one. But the first half of chapter one is Paul kind of addressing uh, the people who are going to read this. And he gives a prayer of praise to God. And that's verses three through 14. The second half, and if you know, I can tell if you're using your apps right now. So if you want to pull it up on your app, it is in the first part of Ephesians. Um, And then the second half, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. Okay. So that is verse 15 through 23. 
Now, if you were reading this in Greek, which I cannot do uh, without help, but if you were reading this in Greek, what you would notice is that that first half of chapter one and the second half, both of them are just one big run-on sentence. And punctuation was added for the sake of us so that we can get our heads around it. So it's kind of poetic. In fact, this way of poetically speaking was very common in, the, in Asia Minor, Minor in that time. And so Paul is really contextualizing to that time. And so in the first half, Paul praises God. Now listen to what he praises God for. Three things. That we're adopted into the family of God. Second, that in Jesus we have redemption, forgiveness, freedom from shame, grace, and unity. All of that's in Jesus. And then third, that we were given the Holy Spirit. What do you hear in those threes? You hear the Trinity, yes, the Trinitarian reality, God as loving parent, God as incarnated into the world as the person of Jesus, and then the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for the church. So that's the first half of that chapter. Second half, Paul is thankful. What is he thankful for? Paul is thankful that the churches have been trying to live with faith and love, and he encourages them to keep doing that, probably because it was challenging in the same way that it is for us. He is thankful that God gives wisdom through the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful for that. Anyone else thankful for wisdom? He's thankful that the church has hope in Jesus. Yes, hope would be important for someone in prison to be writing to his friends. And then finally, he says that he is thankful that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in the church. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in the church. So, okay, so now let's double click on that part. Paul says, God has offered incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably great power for us who believe. So if you have a Bible with you, look at these next verses here. I'll pull this up here on my phone since I can't read my Bible because I don't have enough light up here. (laughs) So if we look at this second part of Ephesians, (coughs) look at what is said here. He says that there's incomparable power. And that means in comparison to any other type of power. And you see him going on here, starting uh, in the middle of verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he, Jesus, exerted, God, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Other names are being invoked sometimes. You know how we say in the name of Jesus? At that time, people might say in the name of and add some other Greek god or something like that. He is more powerful than any other name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So there's the first time we see the word church. And God placed all things under his feet, Jesus, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So there we see that word church. Uh, In Greek here, it's ekklesia. And it really kind of means the assembly, the assembly, the the gathered ones. That's what it means literally. But when Paul is talking about the ekklesia, he means the people of Jesus everywhere who gather in the name of Jesus. These are the people that he is talking about when he mentions this. We need to try to get our heads out of the idea that Paul is talking about local congregations at this point. At this point, the church in Ephesus and the church in Antioch, they're mostly like little house churches all over the place, and they see themselves as the church of one specific city. And I think that's a helpful distinction for us as well. Some of you have heard me say this, that I really believe that the church of Jesus, there's only one. It just meets in many different local expressions, Mm -hmm. right? 
And, and there's reasons for those expressions that we could get into, but when church is used in a letter like this, it is not talking about the local church is. It is talking about the one big group of people trying to center their lives on Jesus. That's the ecclesia, the, the church. So I sometimes feel a little cringy when we think about things like, like the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Have you heard these types of phrases? Like, oh man, I don't know. It seems like things aren't always going so well with the church. <laughs> it feels like we've been a little bit of a mess as the church. Yes, please, I can't see you, so yes? Yeah. Okay, that's okay. <coughs> I mean, we can tell stories, right? And not just recent, all throughout Christian history of how the church has caused harm, has caused abuse, even death. And I get that we haven't all participated in that directly, but can I say we can all repent for that directly? Yes. Not to mention the display of disunity that we see all around us when it comes to Jesus' followers. And I am reminded of that disunity every year when the Packers play the Vikings, <laughs> which is today, I'm told, yes? Yeah. yeah. Now, it's not for the reason that you think, because I actually think it's just fun, right? Who are you cheering for today? Ashish, you silly goose, cheering for the Packers. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we could get into it, but that's just fun, right? That's just fun. Here, here's why it reminds me of the disunity in the church, something a lot more serious, okay? Uh, it reminds me of an experience I had a few years ago. And I'm never going to forget it. I was talking to this other pastor, a colleague of mine. Uh, let's call him Steve, okay? His name's not Steve, but that's the male version of Stephanie, so I'll just throw that one under the bus. Okay, so Steve, I'm talking to Steve, and Steve's a good guy, nice guy, appreciate him. But when I'm talking to him, I was having a conversation about how I find so much value in partnering with Jesus followers that are a part of different denominations and part of different groups talking about how much I learned from them and how much I feel like I can grow. And he said to me this, don't you realize that when you go to be with those other groups, it's like you're wearing a Vikings jersey in the Packers locker room, no. right? Okay, so I said to him, first of all, Steve, <laughs> it is unhelpful on so many levels that you're comparing the church to the NFL. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, second of all, and I was being funny, but I said, second of all, here's the thing. We're on the same team. Yeah. <laughs> We're on the same team. There's only one jersey. It's the Jesus jersey. That's what I'm wearing. There's one for you, Steve. Let's do it, man. Okay. And the conversation went on and we're still friends, but I just want to invite us into this. Oh. oh the lights are coming back. Yeah. Oh! All right, so that's where we pick it up. I'm talking to Steve, and I'm like, Steve, we're on the same team, right? So this is what I want to invite us to think about today, together at Jesus Followers. That when it comes to the, the church, when we're talking about the church, the way that Paul's talking about it here, he's talking about the group of Jesus followers all over the world trying to center their lives on Jesus. We can also talk about the human institutions that surround the religion of Christianity, right? The, the, like churches that are local churches, like Mill City Church. And guess what institutions do? They fail, right? They fail a lot. It's not a secret. I mean, when it comes to the church, ooh, here we go. When it comes to the church, right, the, the institutions of the church, we've got all sorts of really weird looking jerseys and cringy mascots, yes. <laughs> right? Metaphorically, I'm going with the football <laughs> metaphor, okay. So 
I'm not saying that the churches, the institutions, that, that it's not that they don't do any good. Of course they do. But they also do a lot of harm, yes? Yes. So the yeah. church of Jesus is not what is being talked about here, these institutions that I'm mentioning. I'm trying to separate this idea for us. The church of Jesus is those who make up the global group of those who gather in the name of Jesus. When, sent, when they're centered on Jesus, the gates of hell cannot prevail against them. Right? Right? But the failures happen. The failures are the human part. Can we own those? Okay. But those who make up the global group of those who gather in the name of Jesus, those are those that are centered on Jesus. And how do we know that it won't fail? How do we know that part? Yes, it's in scripture that the, the gates of hell will not prevail, that kind of line. But why we know that is because we know the end of the story. Right? We know the end of the story. Jesus is the one who brings redemption and restoration. Jesus is the one that's going to make all things new. And then in a crazy turn of events, Jesus invites us to be a part of that. That's the cool part. Jesus invites us to be a part of that redemption story. Jesus chose the humans who would center their lives on his to be the ones that got to live out his mission. Those humans here in Ephesians are called the church. So do you see the distinction I'm making? Yes. We need to keep that in mind. We are, according to this passage, to be his body. That's the metaphor given here. Paul uses that metaphor in other places. And the body of Christ, of Jesus, when actually moving as the body of Christ, has access to incomparably great power. So look at the verses that I just read. Let me emphasize a couple things. How many words are there in this passage that are about power? The power is the same as the mighty strength exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Far above all rule, authority, power, dominion. Do you see all these words for power in this poetic way that, that Paul's talking about? So the, the answer to the challenge that we face about how to be Jesus-centered in a power-obsessed world is clearly not to avoid power altogether. I mean, you, you see it right there. We can't avoid it. To decide it's all terrible and kind of hide away until Jesus comes back. I'm not the only one tempted to do that, right? So we just want to hide from it. But it seems really clear that Paul would suggest that the power of Jesus, the power is the power over all other power for all of time. The redemptive power of Jesus is the power over all powers. That's why he's using so much language to make that point. The power is so mighty that it led to the resurrection of Jesus, which is on which our hope is placed, right? One commentary I read said, Jesus has power over every conceivable category of strength. Whether invisible or visible, Christ is above it. So that means that avoiding power isn't the option, even if it's tempting. Rather, power, might, and authority have to be completely redefined based on the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to reject power, but to redefine it. This is the most important thing for us today. Jesus did not come to reject power, but to redefine it. The words and the works and the ways of Jesus determine what power and might and authority will look like. So let me just give you a, a flyover in the Gospels. Many of you know these stories. What does the redefinition of power look like according to the works and the words and the ways of Jesus? This is not an exhaustive list, but let me just read some things for you. It looks like sacrificial love, undeserved forgiveness, speaking the truth in love, freedom for the captives, loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, justice for the oppressed, mercy for those in need, serving and washing the feet of those that you lead, seeing kids as valuable kingdom participants, giving dignity 
to women. Time for prayer and rest with the Father. Treating those who are sick with compassion. Crossing the barriers of race and ethnicity. And it looks like supernatural power over evil and the spiritual realm. That's the redefinition of power that we see in the life of Jesus. So if the church is given power, power in the name of Jesus, that's what a mighty Jesus-centered church would look like. Those things, yes? So I want to have just a little family meeting to talk about one more thing before we close. And that is, in this world in which it's so difficult to be a Jesus-centered church, because of the, the obsession and the power that we have around us, this obsession with power, I want to name a really specific challenge that we face. It's kind of swirling around us in this power-obsessed world. And it's what sociologists call Christian nationalism. Right? Some of you have heard this phrase. This is not a new phrase to most of you, but I'm going to define it so that we're on the same page, okay? And I don't bring this up to be controversial. I don't, I'm not interested in that. I bring this up because I'm actually really concerned about it for us. Yes. And so if you're feeling like questions and, and emotions about it, let's talk about it. I'm open to other perspectives. But I bring this up because I genuinely think it's deeply dangerous for our souls, and it's frankly dangerous for the world that God loves. Here's the definition. Let me read it since we don't have it up for you. Whitehead and Perry, sociologists, okay? This is how they define it. Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. I'll read it again. A cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. And that's in their book. I've got a copy of it here. Uh, it's called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Uh, they're just a catchy title. They're just sociologists, a lot, a lot of research in here. It's actually mostly what it is. Now, Christian nationalism is not exclusive to America. Uh, it's, we've seen it in lots of places around the world, but America has its own special brand of it, is what I'm going to say. And historically, around this, the world, this blurred distinction between Christian identity and political identity has been the root of so much pain and suffering. We've seen this so many times, and people are suggesting that Christianity is their motivation for that. We could talk for a long time about how those beliefs become forms, like how people get there. But the part that's so disturbing to me is that the word Christian is in the name of this belief system, which isn't primarily a religious belief system at all. It's a political one. So another sociologist, Philip Gorski, says, Christian nationalism is political idolatry dressed up as religious orthodoxy. This is this fusion of political identity and Christian identity leads to this equation, equating allegiance of country with allegiance with God. And, you know, make no, make no mistake, no ideology on any side of the spectrum can have our allegiance over Jesus. Amen. So Christian nationalism changes the sentiment from the, the name of Jesus will never fail to America will never fail. Or America should never fail. And thus this type of ideology almost always leads to violence. Studies have shown that those who hold the ideology of Christian nationalism are more likely to be authoritarian ethnocentric and racially prejudiced. This is not a Christian worldview, it's not Christianity. It's it's not even religion, properly speaking, according to sociologists. And so it's so easy, very easy for me to say that I absolutely think our faith should inform our politics. I absolutely think that praying for political leaders of any side is so critical. I think it's so important that we participate in civic life as Jesus followers with love as our motivation. I absolutely think we need to vote as our faith leads. I have seen people do that so well 
out of all political parties on all sides. This is not actually about left and right. Christian nationalism is something more insidious. It's the toxic power of the world cloaked in Christian words. And it's devastatingly bearing the name of Christ. And as I've studied the effects of Christian nationalism over the last couple of years, I've learned that the research finds that Christian nationalism influences Americans' opinions and behaviors often in the opposite direction of a commitment to Jesus. For instance, people who frequently attend church and pray and read scripture, I mean, those are just three markers. People who do that are less likely to be people who believe in Christian nationalist ideology. Those who score high in those faith practices also score high in empathy, ability to recognize discrimination, care for the poor and marginalized, and a willingness to forgive others. That's good news, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems as what emerges, what's emerging from this ideology is a form of the toxic power obsession that's the opposite of the way of Jesus that we were reading about earlier, right? You see it as the opposite. So if, that's, if that brings up a lot for you, let's talk about that because I think this is critical. So let's come back to this question. How can we be a Jesus-centered church in the midst of a power-obsessed world? Here's my answer to that, okay? A Jesus-centered church lays down the power of the world in order to receive the redefined power in the name of Jesus. A Jesus-centered church lays down the power of the world in order to receive redefined power in the name of Jesus. And it's hard to do this, it's hard to let it go because the power obsession in our culture is kind of addicting and it fuels this false sense of control and security and we wanna hold on to things, especially in shaky times like I think we're experiencing now. But the good news is right here in Ephesians. The very power of God is what will help us do this. The very power of God. Jesus gives us the strength and the power to live out his love in a redefined type of power in the world. So, at the end of, of this chapter, verse 22 and 23, God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Now listen to this. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's who Jesus is. He fills everything in every way. So my application for all of us today is this. We need to follow Jesus' lead. What did Jesus do? He emptied himself of the power and the authority of this world, and he gave up his life. He conquered death, and the mighty power of God raised Jesus from the dead. And that's the invitation for us. Because we can't avoid power in this power-obsessed world. So just like Jesus, we've got to lay it down every day. This is me talking about surrender again, nothing new. Laying it down, emptying yourself of the power and the control, whatever word you resonate with the most, this false sense of security that comes on our life so that we can be filled with empowerment from the Holy Spirit. That's our application. In our life, how do we let go and, and release and empty ourselves of the power and control in this world so that we can be filled with the power that comes from Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So as the band comes up, here is what I want to, to leave with you today. Uh, we really believe that this phrase, in the name of Jesus, has power. Amen? Not in the name of anything else, in the name of, not in the name of Mill City Church or the church as an institution, in the name of Jesus. And so that's why for 14 years that's been our mission statement, to love our community in the name of Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray for healing. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray for reconciliation. It's the name of Jesus that we pray against evil that creates brokenness in our lives and in the systems in this world. And you have authority in the name of Jesus in these ways. 
And if that's super new to you, please talk to me and Stephanie Kaihai. We're, we're helping train people to think about what is the spiritual authority you have. There is a cohort that's starting really soon. Let us know. But this is why 14 years ago we chose this mission to love our community in the name of Jesus. Because loving other people is a good thing, but without the power in the name of Jesus, there's so much more that happens, more than we'll ever see in our life. But I have seen a lot of things, mighty and powerful things that God has done in 14 years. So I want to end with the four, my top 14 things I've seen God do in mighty and powerful ways, okay? And you might have different ones. I have seen marriages miraculously healed. I've seen foster children find forever families. I've seen unity and diversity, racially, ethnically, and socially. We've seen a trafficking ring thwarted. Tell you that story sometime. When it comes to meals provided for Minnesota kids in need, every meal is at 9,759,477 meals. And that will what next week. I've seen, number six, teachers, principals, and students encouraged and celebrated. I've seen miraculous healing both natural and medical and supernatural, all of the above. I've seen people set free from addictions. I've seen 10 different churches marching down in unity in the Northeast Parade saying, we're not promoting our church, but the church. I've seen the power and the, of the willingness that comes from a willingness to lament, repent, and act, bring healing to those who are marginalized. I've seen radical forgiveness and reconciliation. Number 12, Hundreds of thousands of dollars have been invested to love our city and to send people to love others in the name of Jesus around the world. Number 13, emotionally healthy healing has come through God's gifts of the Holy Spirit and of community, but also therapy. And number 14, people have found healing and renewal in Jesus after being deeply hurt by institutions and the church. And the truth is, yeah, that's amazing. Praise God. I could give you 14 more, but I will stop. A Jesus-centered church lays down the power of the world in order to receive the redefined power in the name of Jesus. And so in this time of worship, would you just figure out how to let some of that go? Whatever that looks like for you, that's what this time is for. Let me close with some words that Paul uses in chapter 3 as he's speaking about the church, as he preaches and closes in this beautiful prayer. Now to him, Jesus, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Amen.